Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Core Consult RX Podcast, episode 46, coming at you and coming at you quick. Cole, what's going on? Doing great. How's work, life, everything? Flu shots have finally slowed down. Have they? Yeah. Golly. So no more 70 flu shot days? No, but apparently people are saying, you know, flu's all over the place. I haven't really seen it, but like one, one, two cases. Maybe. Really? Yeah. No uh, Tamiflu yet? Like two. Hmm. That's it. That means it's coming. Yeah. That'll probably hit hard later on. Yeah, we haven't really seen any of the clinic either, actually. Really? Uh-uh. Do they come uh, to your clinic for that? I, I mean, they can. I suppose they could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think. I haven't seen any anti- Tamiflu people there, but I would think they uh, would treat I just haven't seen any cases yet. Seen like some, you know, sinusitis, stuff like that, but. We didn't ever talk about the uh, the new antiviral injection that mm. came out. Mm. Yeah. Sure didn't. The name's escaping me, but there is a new one out there. You know what? You don't want influenza? Yeah. Yeah, I want to start with an X. Yeah, something like that. I can't remember why the name's escaping me now, too. Shoot. Right. Had a drug wreck come the other day and talk a lot about it, and he was like, You're going to order it? You're going to order it? And we were like, Let's wait for a prescription on it before we order this sucker. Is it expensive? I haven't even looked yet. I'm sure it is, yeah. Um, I think Jen's uh, store um, uh, they had, had one? some come in. So I think she's dispensed it a few times. Interesting. But I have to, I have to talk to her and ask her if it's been... Uh, I'm sure the retail pharmacists that listen are like, yes, it's covered. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I haven't actually seen it in person yet. Um, so, uh, you've been still having to travel all over the country for... I'm going to Beaufort tomorrow. Are you? Yeah. What's that, like a two and a half hour drive? Yeah, like an hour and a half. Not that. Okay. Uh, maybe a little under two. Are you having to stay there overnight? No. Coming back? Coming back. I don't really like staying overnight if I don't have to. It's scary in those hotels. I know. <laughs> Just by, all by myself? I know. No one did read you a bedtime story <laughs> or nothing. <laughs> um, we had a pharmacist that, um... Apparently, I I never actually verified this with him, but apparently, like his like one of his first like couple of shifts floating. Mm-hmm. Like, he was like graduated like a year, I think before me sometime, but apparently, like one of his first shifts like actually floating. He got bit by a tick in like his, <laughs> in his hotel room. He just got like he got like a case of like um what is it the uh, Lyme disease? No, not Lyme. Um, Rocky uh, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Uh, yeah, and uh, like had to get you know it was you know treated pretty quick and stuff, but it was just like. That's horrible luck. That's I pretty don't think unfortunate. I would ever stay at a hotel again after that. <laughs> really don't want to float yeah, anymore. Yeah, way, uh, way to really put us put them up at the Ritz there. Uh, Jeez. Pharmacy name that I won't say. Well, at least you would know how to treat it because it's always Doxy. <clears throat> yeah. Anything like that, Doxy, it's fine. <laughs> yes, let's go with it. I came right probably five to 14 days somewhere in that range. Go I just for it. went in the morning and, you know, started my shift, took some Doxy and kept going. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. When you had it? <laughs> yeah, when, when I got bit by the tick. <laughs> you're, you're actually, same hotel. You're, you're actually the person. <laughs> it was the same tick. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was, it was a, actually That me. tick is ruthless. Oh, <laughs> uh, so what are we talking about today? Nonsense, apparently. Nonsense? Nonsense. I thought we were talking about hepatitis C. Hep C. Yes. yes. So uh, this is definitely a topic that we probably should not be going over in, in one podcast, um, unless we just have like unlimited amounts of time, but we don't. Um, so we're going to kind of cover some of the more, I guess, basic properties mm-hmm. of hep C. We won't go into, I mean, we'll go into treatments for maybe some of the common genotypes and we'll kind of play it by ear from there, but yeah. um, we will definitely revisit this. Uh, there's a oh, sure. an infectious disease physician um, that I got to meet with. Uh, last week, and who who said he would be interested in sharing one of his cases uh, on the podcast? So we will uh, hopefully get him on soon, and that will be someone significantly more qualified to really go deep into the stuff um, 
you know, than either of us. So um, we'll hopefully have that. So kind of keep an eye out for that. But for today, we'll kind of touch on some of the stuff to get you familiar with it and then leave you with some cliffhangers until he gets here. Where do you want to start? We can just talk about how common it is. Uh, it doesn't seem like many people know a whole lot about hep C, both patient-wise and practitioner-wise generally, uh, probably because the drug names are so hard to pronounce. I really think if they made the drug names easier to remember, mm-hmm. not the brands, the generics, people would know a lot more about hep C. Mm, it's, that, de- it's definitely a theory. That's all it is. Wow. That's the only reason they don't know. Who knew? No, but it is, it's very, for how common it is and how many people are living with chronic hep C, it is interesting how this topic is frequently avoided, kind of like HIV. Um, and really, I guess any infectious disease topic people tend to avoid just because they think it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but around the world, the World Health Organization estimates like 71 million people could be living with chronic hep C, um, significantly lower in the U.S. Obviously, it's a few million, but it's still very common. Um, but like Mike, Mike was talking about this before, but more people die from hep C than HIV, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And, um, the, the interesting part about it is even though we have some really great drugs now, the, uh, the number of acute cases actually had like a big spike, um, from between 2005 and 2015, mm-hmm. we saw this huge spike of acute cases of hep C. So, you know, there's been some theories as far as maybe that's possibly due to, like, the opioid um, epidemic and things. But um, there's actually, you know, some talk that the, the, the rates of hep C will continue and, and specifically the deaths um, will continue to rise um, until around the year 2030 to 2035 is what they're predicting, um, where it finally will kind of reach that threshold where enough clinicians are, are treating patients and... Um, you know, then we'll start to come back down and hopefully eventually one day eradicate the virus. But um, they're thinking that by the time it hits that peak, it's going to be potentially about 36,000 patients per year could be um, passing away because of hep C. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting because we, we, a lot of times we don't think of hep C um, as being like this killer. Um, and a lot of times it's because patients are elderly um, and they may die from some of the comorbidity versus the actual hep C. Um, but, you know, given enough time and now that we have all these younger patients that are starting to become infected, then uh, we potentially could see a big increase. Right. And how do people die of hep C? Obviously, frequently it's cirrhosis and liver failure. Mm-hmm. But there are a couple of big barriers to why it might take that long for that many patients to be treated in this to really start being eradicated. Uh, one is a lot of people just don't know. That's why there's this huge push with patients who were born between 1945 and 1965 to get tested uh, to see if they have hep C so they can potentially get treated. And that's who, um, historically, the majority of the hep C uh, cases were in was in that age group. There's some theories behind that. Um, some think it's because it wasn't really screened for in blood products like infusions. So if you got a transfusion, you could have gotten it from that. Also, generally, I think that the um, knowledge about it and prevention measures weren't really there, but they have some great treatments for it now to mm-hmm. where they can call it, you know, quote unquote, a clinical cure. Yeah, it um, is. Yeah, it's a, it's a complete cure, it's, which is can, crazy when we think of viral right. you diseases. Can, you can actually make it to where the, the viral load is so small that it's actually considered a cure. The issue is it's going to cost a significant amount of money um, to get that done, but uh costs are coming down there's options for patients who want to have this and in some cases if it's potentially going to um, take you know 10 or 20 years off your life it might be worth the investment for people who can afford it yeah and i think that it's it 
especially it's the younger, um, like I was in a meeting, like I said, last week, and the physician was saying that, you know, when you're evaluating who's a candidate for uh, receiving these crazy expensive medications and finding the funding for them, you know, if you have a patient that's 25 years old yeah. and no other comorbidities, like it's no brain, like cure them. Yeah, you're going to um, treat them. If you have another patient that's having no complications from the hep C, but they're in their 70s and they have some other comorbidities going on, like you may not even need to treat it because mm-hmm. what's really, what are you really preventing? There's no way the hep C is going to take them before right. something else does. So it's kind of an interesting, it's a weird look way to look at it, I guess, because we don't normally treat things in medicine like that, but it, it, it definitely makes sense. And it's not a, a, uh, in an emergence situation. So yeah. if you were to be diagnosed today, it's not like you have to go rush to an infectious disease clinic to begin treatment. That's right. not how it's not, it's not like it is with HIV. So, right. um, it's, you know, I think that when we hear things like hepatitis, um, we automatically just kind of lump it into the same for those of us who are not infectious disease folks kind of lump it together with things like HIV. It's like, okay, we gotta get treatment now because this is going to be, right. uh, you know, horrible in the body. Hep C's, um, you got time and it takes a very long time for it to actually cause problems usually. Um, some of the m- common risk factors, um, and you know, that's for different age groups, obviously not just elderly anymore, but, um, they can be transmitted, uh, sexually. Um, however, the most common risk factor is going to be, uh, injection drug use. Um, uh, but it can be transmitted sexually, and it seems to be, in, in regards to sexual transmission, seems to be um, higher in men who have sex with men, um, especially if those um, ha- that have HIV as well. Um, so you'll see this HIV uh, hep C co-infection. Um, and then, you know, there's some other smaller risk factors as well, but um, the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases and the Infectious Disease Society of America have guidelines that they did together um, where they discuss when to treat patients for hepatitis C, um, and that includes the injection drug use, and they actually included intranasal illicit drug use as well. Um, But they they also recommend uh, patients who have been on long-term dialysis, uh, patients who are getting tattoos, from someone who's renting a tattoo parlor in someone's garage versus a... Uh, it literally you know, says that in the guideline. It does. It was interesting that they threw humor into such a serious <laughs> Make thing. Make it so specific. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I like their style. And uh, and then also um, patients who have, have had um, transfusions or organ transplants in the past, children who are born... Um, to hepatitis C positive mothers, um, people who are incarcerated, and you know the list goes on for a little bit longer. So um, they they break it down really well. So definitely encourage you to check that out, as well as the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. I believe it was 2013 um, gave the recommendations on Hep C screening as well. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's definitely some some good resources out there. Awesome. So what is the hep C virus uh, per se? So it's a it's a spherical envelope, single-stranded RNA virus, and it's in the family Flavivirus, or the genus Flavivirus, or Flavoridae, I guess. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's very similar, apparently, to the dengue and yellow fever viruses, and it can produce about 10 trillion new viral particles each day. So it can, it can really get moving. Um, it obviously targets specifically hepatocytes. It's its natural target, and that's why it causes hepatitis. Um, but possibly B lymphocytes as well, it can actually affect those. Um, and some other studies suggest that at least 50% of hepatocytes may be infected uh, with hepatitis C 
in the patients who have chronic hep C. So a significant amount, and that's what ultimately causes the, the cirrhosis and the long-term complications from hep C. You said how many, what was the viral replication? I saw 10 trillion. Where was that at? Because um, that sounds wrong. Uh, well, I mean, you know, that's no, just... No, no, I mean, like, yeah, I just mean, like, whoever wrote that, I think... It, it could be. <laughs> I thought that I was thinking it was way less than that, and that's why we can actually cure it versus... Um, HIV. Do you remember where that was? At? I'm I curious it, now. It potentially could have been on Medscapes. I just don't even. I'm going to get angry thinking email about this and tell <laughs> us how we're wrong. So I'm just kind of cut it off before they get to us. Okay, we'll say take that part with a grain of salt. Yeah, I'll look it up as we're talking. But go ahead. Yeah. So, anyways, that's that's what Hep C is. Um, and then, as far as the actual, uh, they, you'll see some gut, like some diagrams and things that actually list out um, the different structures of how the, the RNA gets replicated and all that. And the different points on um, that process is what we target with our drugs. Mm-hmm. And so there's some really good um, diagrams out there. Um, we won't go through you know that over you know without a visual so um we'll put something on instagram or but when you see like the targets of these drugs are like ns2 Mm -hmm. or ns4a ns4b all that stuff those are those are specific points on the rna like mike said proteins that it targets to ultimately derail its viral replication and stop it yes how it works all right um we want to go to uh kind of looking at a patient who's we can, we can look at like um, a little bit in diagnostics, right? Yeah, yeah, let's go. Let's do that. So they they if a patient comes in, right, and you suspect Hep C, then you want to diagnose it with them. There's multiple or there are serologic assays you can do um, to detect uh, Hep C and determine the genotype. And we'll talk about why that's important because it'll determine treatment. Um, there's tests like the third generation Hep C EIA test that's most frequently used. Um, and it's an antibody test to initially screen patients for hep C. Very high sensitivity, very high specificity, uh, but it doesn't really distinguish between current and resolved hep C infection. So hep C is pretty interesting in that after an acute infection, you can actually have a spontaneous resolution. Mm-hmm. So in, you know, sometimes a small amount, sometimes a large amount of patients, it might just go away and you don't even have to treat it. So a lot of times they might say, watch and wait. Like Mike said, it's not a not an emergent thing to go ahead and start treating. You might watch and wait a few months to see if it just resolves on its own and you might not have to treat it. And, and so that, and I actually uh, was quizzed on this during our meeting um, by the, uh, the expert and I, I stupidly answered incorrectly. So I'll never forget this, but um, <laughs> I, he said, if, if you see a, um, an antibody, you get a, you get a hep C antibody, um, reading, but you also do not detect the viral load at all. Like, what is that? No, you know, R- no Hep C RNA. What does that mean? And my first thought was like maybe like an acute setting. And he he you know he's like no, it's it's where someone has cleared it, so they have the antibodies, but they don't actively have the, the virus anymore. And he said it's about twenty percent of uh, patients will clear it on their own. Hmm, yeah. And so, um, you know, and what was interesting is while we were talking, we had one of our providers come in with a brand new case. They should literally just gotten a test back um, right then and there. The patient's still in the clinic uh, for positive hep C. And well, what they were saying was positive hep C. And uh, it, they were saying that, um, well, the antibodies are showing positive for, for hep C. So we know she has it. And then I was like, ah, no, slow uh, your roll. Maybe not. <laughs> And so it was. It was cool to see it kind of 
play out because we automatically see that. Oh, yeah, they have they have it, but it is something that can resolve itself. So you got to keep that in mind. And I guess they might have used like because you can do an oral test for the HCV antibody. Mm-hmm. So they may have had like the OraQuick is one of the brands that you can use and get mm-hmm. a point of care test. Bang! Is this something we need to follow up on? Yeah, and we need to post something about like the actual all the different because there's so many different tests. I feel like yeah, there's um, a bunch. And there's uh, there's a couple that um, they seem to to prefer so we'll we'll make a list of some of those um, and cdc has some guidelines that they put out in 2013 so maybe um probably could be updated at this point but yeah. might have some guidance um so as far as you know before you actually start treatment you have to kind of uh, evaluate some other you know risk factors that kind of go along with the hep c as well um, so the first thing to consider would be alcohol history because mm-hmm. yep. we don't want to cure them of hep c if they're destroying their liver with alcohol uh, and unfortunately um, that does happen sometimes where a patient you know is may not be a candidate because their their alcohol addiction is pre- is going to prevent them from maybe being adherent um, some clinicians would rather them get treatment for that um, other clinicians if they feel like the patient is going to be adherent and they feel like they can kind of um, have they have good you know, rapport with the patient that even though they have they still have a, a history of alcohol or a you know use alcohol use um, currently they will try to get them the help they can but they will also cure the hep C if they think that the person will um, benefit from it long term that's going to be you know definitely an expert decision um, to be able to use their uh, clinical judgment in that case right um, there's a couple questionnaires that uh, you can use if you're worried about um, alcohol use alcohol history um, one was the cage questionnaire um, and there's also the um, the audit test so the alcohol use disorders identification test mm-hmm. just questionnaires that you can go through just like um, real simple things is scoring system and it kind of gives you a range of what the likelihood of that person and i've seen cage used uh, multiple times mm-hmm. and they'll use it not just in instances of hep c yeah. but just alcohol use and in like general. psych and all kinds yeah. of yeah yeah um, and then uh, also the other thing you don't want to evaluate is injection drug. You know, if the person is an elderly person at this point, but, you know, in their 20s, maybe they party a little too hard, uh, but they're not doing, you know, those risky behaviors anymore, then that really wouldn't be a factor. But you'd still want to um, use some caution of a patient who is currently using heroin or, or something like that. You would want to obviously evaluate whether that person's going to be able to come to appointments. Right. So, and not only do you want to, you know, say, okay, you know, where's the patient at with these lifestyle type factors? We can start counseling lifestyle modification. Like this isn't something that is either, oh, well, you got this, and we can either cure it or not. You can modify things to um, essentially protect your liver long term. So, um, there's also things you want to consider. We're pharmacists, so you consider over the counter meds. Um, they do have recommendations about Tylenol dosing in patients with chronic Hep C without cirrhosis. They would recommend a max of two grams of uh, Tylenol a day. But if they have cirrhosis, then you just want to limit it to about a gram a day. And if they or have cirrhosis or Hep C with excessive alcohol intake, you know, let's just stay away from the Tylenol. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally speaking, NSAIDs are safe in patients with Hep C. Unless they have cirrhosis, then you would ultimately want to avoid them. Uh, they also can take multivitamins uh, without iron, uh, but excess iron intake in the absence of iron deficiency can actually promote you know, mild hepatic injury, so you may want to stay away from that. And you also want to make sure you're checking their vitamin D levels because we um, 
we didn't do an episode on vitamin D. We did an episode on CKD, and that's what we're talking we about. Talked vitamin about vitamin D. D. Yeah, yeah, but we talked about how it, um, the liver's involved in that process, and so you'd want to uh, check that and see if you might need to supplement uh, as needed. Yep. So um, the the other thing would be evaluating um, whether or not they have other, um, I guess, comorbidities that could also be affecting the liver, not just Hep C. Uh, so, you know, kind of looking at whether or not, um, you know, the person has, like we said, obviously alcoholic liver disease, but also non-alcoholic fatty liver disease mm-hmm. is becoming a huge problem. Um, you know, alpha one antitrypsin deficiency, um, autoimmune hepatitis, where you would need to kind of look for some of your autoantibodies, um, autoimmune, uh, um, or excuse me, anti-nuclear antibodies, anti-mitochondrial antibodies, and some other um, markers that may indicate that. But um, we do need to just kind of assess and make sure that uh, that we're not just we're we're not missing something and assuming it's just the one um, disease state at play. Because frequently there are multiple, especially in the older patients. Mm-hmm. Younger, maybe not as much, but older, yeah. definitely so. Um, and then there's a lot we could go in all day on the uh, physical examination. Um, if you are really interested in kind of looking through, you know, getting definitions on ascites and different, you know, jaundice and all these different things, um, I would definitely encourage you to check out hepatitis C um, dot uw dot edu mm-hmm. um, University of Washington edu. Uh, they have a really really good Hep C um, set of modules that you can kind of go through. Um, I mean, they're they're really really thorough, and if you want a solid review on Hep C, I would definitely encourage you to check their website out. Awesome. All right, what do you want to uh, go from here? We talk about some fibrosis. Let's do it. So that's a significant um, issue related to Hep C, and fibrosis is basically more of a dynamic scarring process uh, where you can have chronic inflammation of the liver. This stimulates production and accumulation of collagen extracellular matrix proteins it's going to make the liver harder and it's not going to rejuvenate um, like it should because the liver is actually an organ that can more or less heal itself uh, and this is going to decrease its ability to do that so long-term fibrosis leads to um, cirrhosis uh, if if not treated or not remedied and uh, definitely a long-term complication of hep c yeah, absolutely, and and also kind of a good indication of when we uh, probably if if it does turn into cirrhosis and becomes uh, pretty severe, we need to uh, probably refer to a hepatologist. Yeah. So if if you're a primary care doctor dealing with that, which they can, um, you know, I think this is important to say. I mean, Mike, we're talking about this too. PCPs can manage uh, Hep C. You don't have to refer them on. Um, you know, if you have if you feel like you're adequately prepared to do so then you definitely can but in the later stages uh if you're concerned for that then yeah hepatology consult would be the the way to go and you know for those of you whose first thought is well why would you take the chance why wouldn't you just send them to infectious disease um think about it in regards of patients who maybe don't have funding or you know homeless populations or whatever Mm -hmm. the case may be um so some of your um like uh fairly qualified Healthcare centers, you know, they they can um, potentially educate their providers on treating Hep C and and treat a patient population that would otherwise go kind of um, without care. 
So it, it opens up doors for other people and not everyone has the ability to go see an infectious disease doc. So we got to treat what we can when we can. Yep. And as far as diagnosing fibrosis, uh, the biopsy, biopsy of the liver still remains the gold standard for diagnosing and establishing uh, if they have fibrosis and what the severity is. And it's interesting because and that's, that's what a lot of the literature says um, as far as biopsying. But uh, when I was speaking to the expert yesterday, he was saying that you know, there, there may be certain times, but because um, the, the, the different scans that we have and things like that, he said in the last four years, he's only had to biopsy like two different, really? yeah. So it just may not be necessary, it, a little too invasive. It's considered as far as um, the gold standard based on the data that's out there, I guess, mm-hmm. the long-term data and, and like an absolute definitive. Because there's always, you know, the test that we have, as he put it, can lie to you. Um, but it's rare and they usually are fairly accurate. And you can right. see all the different accuracy studies that they've done, up-to-date lists, several of them. Um, and then uh, also that website I mentioned earlier does as well. Um, but yeah, he was saying that because the other, the biopsy is so invasive that the um the non-invasive procedures are significantly preferred i was gonna say yeah Yeah. it it would make sense to prefer the non-invasive serum marker tests or whatever to to stage and and potentially treat so and it's interesting and there's there's a whole bunch of uh different tests that they have like um the hepatic ultrasound um there's several different um elastography tests, uh, shear wave, magnetic resonance. There, there's several of them that you can. So it just depend, depends on what your uh, facility has available or what the nearest diagnostic um, facility has available. But there, there are several options. I was looking at, I think Fibroscan was the one I was looking at. Mm-hmm. And they actually have like this little portable one. Like, oh, you really? Run around, it's like a briefcase <laughs> scanning people's livers. Hey, you want to say your liver's doing? Yeah. No fibrosis here. <laughs> Good day, sir. But um, I'm sure that, that I didn't get to see the price on those things, but I'm sure they're still pretty expensive. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah. So, all right. So, we want to talk some drugs? Let's do it. All right. And uh, I guess the best way to kind of do this is we'll go through, um, you know, starting with, like, the specific genotypes and talk about the treatment options because some of it does kind of repeat itself, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, but the most common genotype that you would see would be genotype 1. Especially in the U.S. Yeah. Um, 1 does have subtypes. We have 1A and 1B. Um, typically, we assume it's 1A if you don't have a subtype. Um, but there are um, several drugs now that we, we have available. You know, Back in the day, we had like interferon mm-hmm. and then the pegylated interferon. Um, had they they were able to cure some patients, but nowhere near the kind right. of rate and they added on reviron to it, yeah, and they, cirrhosis, and there's there a lot of side effects. They were able to get get the cure rates, um, not the cure rates, but the the treatment successful treatment rates up relatively high, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy percent. But the the side effects made it completely um, not ideal. Yeah, so there was they needed something else to come. And, and so, you know, now when we think of, like, our cure rates with our newest agents, um, we're thinking about, you know, 99. Right. Nin- 99. 95 to 99. It's yeah. just crazy how high they are. Um, and so... Which I think they have to get above, if I'm, I might be wrong about this, but I had heard that they had to get above 95 to be able to call it a clinical cure. Yeah. Well, I, that sounds right. Which, you know, it seems like most of these are. So... Yeah. That's pretty cool. 
So some some nomenclature things to keep in mind because um, I don't know if we said this on while we were recording, but while we were talking earlier, these, oh yeah, you did because you said these drugs are uh, super hard to pronounce. Yes. So they are. They take some. Uh, they take some uh, some practice, but um, there is a, a way of kind of looking at the the way that they are named and figuring out where they work um, in the on the Hep C virus itself. And so when we think of our uh, NS34A protease inhibitors, um, then they, those drugs are going to end with um, PREVIR. I love it when they do that. Yes. You know what I mean? Love it. um Simipravir, you know, those are some examples, and, and they all will be in that class. So you can look for that PREVIR. Tlaprevir. Um, just wanted to give. Them, I just want to try to pronounce one. So. No, and you did good. Thanks, you're great. And I was solid. You said it with such confidence. <laughs> I was like, yes. Um, our NS5A inhibitors um, are going to end in ASVIR. Um, Ladipsevir crushed it. <laughs> <laughs> you might recognize the, uh, Ladipsevir from um, Harboni. We'll, yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about that because yeah, that was one of the first big ones. In combination with Savospavir, right? Yep. Savospavir. I, 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 I'm really going to practice these. These are terrible. I say Savospavir, but the thing is when you when you say these, it, it's so, unless you're talking to somebody who, who works in this, just if you sound confident and it sounds right, mm-hmm. as long as the, the ending sounds right, it's like, okay, that's, yeah, that the, might as well be good The key is enough. to say as fast as possible yeah. and people just think you have an accent or something. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, this guy's just tired, I guess. <laughs> But um, they, they, uh, the other one is NS5B, which um, Svospavir would fall into, and that's where they end in B, uh, BUVIR. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the three main classes of those new direct-acting agents. Um, and so um, when, when you're looking at drug names, that kind of gives you an idea. And it's usually the newest agents are just a combination um, of you know two or sometimes three of those there's yeah. three classes. I don't think any of them are monotherapy. They're all in combination mm-hmm. as far as yeah. I understand. Yep. And they're not they're not cheap. So you're you're looking at when Harvoni first came out, which is Ladipasvir and Savospavir, um, it was a twelve week treatment and the what people would usually throw around is he has a hundred thousand dollars to to be treated. Um, and to finish this course, which was true. But now they have all these others, and there's a lot of combinations. And so now it ranges anywhere from about 25 ish, 26,000, still upwards of 100,000. Uh, but you can be treated for um, a little bit less money, and you can be treated for shorter durations in certain cases. So some of these are eight week treatments instead of 12, but uh, 12 was kind of where it started mm-hmm. with these new treatments. Um, so. The good thing is, like, like you were saying, you know, we have a treat, a, a cure, which when I first heard about these drugs as far as how much they cost, you know, especially not being in this area, I was like, well, I mean, that just seems crazy they could charge that much um, without getting into the, you know, charging of the, you know, the, the debate of, of drug company charging and prices and all that nonsense. Um, you know, the one thing I, to, to consider is the cost of like a liver transplant. Yeah. Um, oh, and yeah. it's significantly cheaper than that, even if you get the most expensive option. And that's the thing is, you know, when, when you're referring to hepatologists, there's a chance that they're so far gone that, well, got to refer them for a potential, you know, liver transplant. Got to get on the list because that hep C can do that. And what's, what's crazy about it is that in late 2013 and really most of 2014, they were still treating the standard of care for genotype 1 was still PEG interferon 
with ribavirin. That was that was when I started pharmacy school, hmm. and I just graduated. And since 2017, there's multiple safe, convenient, highly affected oral regimens that are rec- recommended for genotype one. And I don't think we we did say it was the most common in the U.S., but about 70 to 75 percent of um, U.S. HV, HCV um, infected patients are going to be genotype one. Yep. So. Um, one thing, you know, as far as treatment options go, um, the way to kind of to look at it, and, and I would greatly encourage you to pull up that uh, University of Washington.edu website and look through all the different tables because they are bountiful <laughs> as far as how many there are. There's oh, yeah. so many different uh, treatment algorithms they have. A lot of them repeat. Um, however, it is good to kind of look at the tables yourself and, and really go through them because there's a lot, and I don't want to um, not do it justice. Yeah, there, there are guidelines for, you know, treatment-naive patients mm-hmm. versus treatment-experienced patients with certain genotypes, whether without cirrhosis, with compensated cirrhosis. So if you had a patient, you would just have to... The, the issue is really classifying and staging them. Mm-hmm. And then once you've done that, there's pretty good guidance as to where to go from there, if that's a possibility. And so they, they have some options. Um, the... Not in any particular order necessarily. Um, they have drugs like uh, Maverick, which is one of the newer ones. Um, that's actually one of the cheaper medications. Um, you know that is compared to the others, it's definitely cheaper. However, um, if the patient does not have insurance, this is what I've been told. I've not seen this from firsthand experience, but from what I've been told, um, if the patient does not have insurance, Maverick's probably out because they're not because they're already such a discounted rate comparatively to the others. Um, they aren't going to give the medication away like um, some of the other medications. You can find programs through Gilead and things where they will just give you uh, the, the patient the medication if it's someone who truly can't afford it, um, and the drug company will cover the cost for the patient. So there's a lot of different options, um, and it's important to have a team kind of established as far as caseworkers and whatnot to make sure that these patients, because if a patient's going to start on it, you got to make sure they can finish it. Right. And so um, making sure that they, they have access to these drugs is really important. Um, but there's also like Epclusa going to be more expensive. Um, Harvoni is still used. Um, one of the things um, to consider in genotype 1A specifically, um, we actually have an eight-week option available because um, the rest of these um, other than Maverick, Maverick's eight weeks, um, but the other ones are 12 weeks. Well, we now have um, authorization for um, patients who have a viral load, um, RNC, I'm sorry, RNC level less than 6 million um, IU per ml uh, for eight weeks of treatment that they, that they don't need to go the full 12, which is definitely a money saver. Um, but they also have to obviously be, like I said, 1A um, genotype. They have to be um, non-African-American. They have to be... Um, uh, uninfected with HIV, so they can't have HIV as well, um, and then they can't have cirrhosis. So um, those are just some of the criteria if you know the patient is thinking that is, is an option. But um, if the patient has insurance and they want to do eight weeks, Maverick's probably a better option anyway. Yeah, and there's a lot of Mike kind of glanced over at Clusa, but um, in this wait, last four years of these waves of targeted therapies for Hep C, the big thing was okay. You know, Mike just listed off some very specific criteria for that drug. And there were pretty specific criteria for each one, depending on the genotype and what situation the patient was in. But then in June of 2016, Eclusa was the first that um, was approved to treat all six major forms mm-hmm. of, of Hep C. 
um, without cirrhosis. So there's still caveats, but it, it's cephospavir and vilpatosphere. Um, but that's pretty cool. So it's approved for all six uh, major forms, and that was the first one to do that. And as far as I know, the, the only one. I, I remember I was actually, I just graduated, and I went to the hepatitis C symposium for some reason. I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> I had no business being there. Man, this sounds cool. Yeah, I was like, this sounds awesome. Let's go here. This made me, this made me look good. I'm going to look so cool here with my name tag. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'm a they, pharmacist. They were talking about the astral trials, which are what are responsible for um, the Epclusa getting uh, approved. And I remember I was sitting there going, whoa, all <laughs> six genotypes. I didn't even know there was six genotypes. <laughs> But um, it was interesting because they were all really excited about it, and um, because it kind of changed the game. So, I think we literally got an hour of this in school, one hour lecture. Yeah, it's nothing. It's crazy. Yeah, and unless even, you even when I learned it, which must have been twenty fifteen, there were a lot less options mm-hmm. than there are now. Well, and, and unless you do a rotation, you know, in, in this area, then it's you're not gonna not gonna see it probably. Right. Um, a lot of places, you know, they they refer out and treat them in infectious disease or specialty farm if you're for the pharmacy students you know the the specialty pharmacies are the ones that'll dispense it and so you don't really get a lot of experience with it but i would definitely if you have the opportunity to do like a hep c hiv especially if it's a combination like hep c hiv patient population um rotation type of thing definitely take advantage of that yeah it's hard to find learning opportunities you gotta do it as you go (laughs) And they are looking into some even new treatments. I mean, they're always coming out, but some new treatments for genotype 1, some triple therapies. Um, like with one, they're adding on a protease inhibitor to two new NS5A and NS5B um, polymerase inhibitors. And uh, there's another new investigational drug, which is another duotherapy, but it's might be approved for a six-week um, treatment instead of the 8 to 12, which we have now. So... There's some new things in the pipeline. I don't know that's really going to change the game all that much. The only thing that will change the game is uh, price drops. Mm-hmm. But, yep, yeah, we'll see how it kind of plays out. And since Mavericks came out and uh, they had a much cheaper price option, then we'll see how that kind of, um, what the market does based on on that. Right. Time will tell. So what, is it, what does it look like, um, you know, in the clinic if you're a PCP treating these guys how often do you have to follow up with them? Do you think is it pretty close monitoring, or do you give them the drug and they just they kind of go with it? So the the because we're in the process of setting a, a Hep C program up now at the clinic that I work for, and um, one of the the things that we've kind of discussed in the the meetings going forward, and we're just in the very early stages, and um, you know the educational pieces are what we're focusing on, obviously right now, but also the 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 setup of a team because it, it needs to be uh, you can't just have a PCP and then you know just treating it like it's you know seasonal allergies and right. hopefully they follow up so it's you have to have a team of people who are there you know everything down to who's going to call the patient when you find out three days later that they are Hep C positive is it going to be the provider is it going to be a caseworker or a counselor um, I mean it's the very specific care who's who's in charge of following up the patient following adherence being almost like a pain in the person's behind because you want to make sure they're getting their drug right um who whose fault is it if you drop the ball if the, the pharmacy doesn't get it out in time the pharmacy was just sitting around not you know without selling it was it the they didn't get the prescription in time because the provider didn't send it there's you have to have everything kind of laid out ahead of time and this is me just kind of talking from our own meetings not me saying from experience so um but it definitely it seems very doable and that you can you can get it set up um you just have to really make sure that everything's kind of in place um, before you take off with it because it is definitely a 
interprofessional collaboration um, of nursing staff, providers, PharmDs, um, caseworkers, MAs, and the whole group. Well, that's where, you know, really a federally qualified health center really comes into play because if you're trying to balance all that when they're not in the same place, I mean, having a pharmacy there, having the provider, the pharmacist, the nurse, the caseworker all in the same building um, definitely streamlines the treatment for, for hep C, it seems. Yeah. You know, and we're going to have to work through a lot of the billing and stuff like that. But yeah. um, we're, we got secret plans in place. So <laughs> secret <laughs> plans. stay tuned. <laughs> Ones I cannot discuss here. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely important because failed, failed um, treatment for hep C is really stinky because you don't want to have to restart that process. Um, it's very expensive. You might have to look into resistance testing and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's important to stay on them and make sure they take their meds. Um, if the other thing is, if you're looking for, um, just to give you some resources to take home, if you're looking for, um, uh, apps for drug interactions, um, you can always use like the standard Lexicon, things like that, but there's also the, uh, Liverpool, um, apps, oh, yeah. the, the hep C, um, and they have an HIV one as well, where you can plug in the hep C or HIV, depending on which app you're using, um, the name of the drug, and then you pick what other, uh, medications they're on. So like if you're checking, um, Harvoni and, um, or whatever the drug is and you click individual components of it and then look against, is it their statin going to interact with it and what dose of their statin? And it has a pretty good explanation. Um, and then at least gives you some, uh, some area to start with and then you can do further research from there, but that's a good, good app to look at. Um, and then there's also, uh, tools and calculators um, available on that University of Washington website um, that, that uh, do really well, um, that you can kind of plug in the, um, the patient's lab values, and depending on what score you're looking at, um, you can get a, get a reading. And there's definitely mobile apps for that as well. So a lot of free resources out there. Uh, there's a big push because we don't have enough people uh, treating hep C. The people who are very passionate about this, um, they've made a lot of the stuff available for free because they're, they're trying to get interest so it's it's pretty it's pretty cool to see the people who are really pushing this to i mean because we have a cure for a virus and then we don't have enough people treating the right. virus to actually cure everyone well i think they're trying to enable uh, more general practitioners to do it because there's just not enough specialists to be able to do that they're right. frequently dealing with more acute issues so yeah if you can if you can move this out which you know primary care providers have enough to deal with but that just means we'll need more primary care providers mm-hmm. um and or you know maybe if they rights for other there are brother healthcare providers, um, <laughs> and you know if they can ultimately make some some income off of this because the the uh, insurance companies are willing to reimburse well, then that'll be much more of an incentive for people to to get into it. Absolutely. So, you know, what we'll do is uh, probably in the next couple of days or so, I'll put some of these drug names and stuff together, um, and so we'll put together like a show notes. I've started a little bit of it already, but I'll finish it up and uh, make that available uh, either in. Uh, I guess I'll probably put it in the comments section, but um, I'll also make it available on on Medium. If you follow the blog website Medium, um, I'll make it available on there as well, and I'll you know put some links on Instagram and things for those of you who follow us there. But, um, you know, we'll, we've gotten some uh, requests that, you know, when we go through these drugs, could you list out the name, the brand and generic? And it's just, mm-hmm. it's not realistic to say it while we're talking like right. this, but, um, I mean, it, I'll put them in the notes so that if you do want to actually use some of this content to, you know, supplement what your, your, your true lectures and whatnot, um, that I'll try to 
try to facilitate that as best we can. Try it's, to help you guys out, but it it's a be, work in progress. Can be tedious. That's the problem. So if anybody wants to come work for free, <laughs> come on, make show notes. <laughs> we'll hang out with you. No, um, but it's a work in progress. So we will keep uh, trying to improve, and um, we got a couple. Uh, uh, tricks up our sleeve with audio quality and stuff we're going to be looking at here pretty mm-hmm. soon some video quality so um for those of you who have been listening to us for a while hopefully um you will start seeing even more improvements and and whatnot always improving trying trying gotta never settle especially in this podcast and world when eight thousand people a day are starting podcasts <laughs> so and that being said we really appreciate you guys listening as always um you know thank you so much and if you know you do enjoy the show we would love for you to leave a comment or a rating um and subscribe to on whatever platform you listen to um and then if you have any questions feel free to email us our emails um our email addresses are in the comments section and we would definitely love to hear from you cole you got anything else before we get out of here that's all i got man Alrighty, we'll see you guys uh, hopefully back here pretty soon. Thanks.